Hello everyone and welcome to Blood and Wine. My name is Tyler. And I'm Brittany. And today we're actually going to do this entire episode in our natural accents, which air from Australia. So we actually grew up inside Melbourne, and I can't actually hold it that long. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, I, Sorry. I said my name and it wasn't even that good. <laughs> I decided not to um, embarrass myself by trying to say anything else. Well, you know, I just uh, have no social filter, so it's fine. Um, but yes, <laughs> like we said, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Tyler. I'm Brittany. And a little hint at today's topic, it uh, does involve Australians, and we love y'all's accents. Like, the uh, the imitation is done out of the greatest appreciation. Because, fun fact... Um, I actually was doing some research on accents. Don't ask why. It's a thing I did. Yeah. Um, and realized that our accent is known as general American, which is about (laughs) the most boring fucking thing. It would be. We would be general Americans. Well, and that's one thing that I tend to not necessarily forget, but not really think of that to other parts of the world, we do have an accent, even though I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't have an accent. I sound like, like boring general American, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's funny. So there's a lot, I mean, obviously the United States, it's a huge country. The accents very widely, but the accent of like metropolitan Oklahoma, Kansas, like Midwest outside of like major cities, like, Milwaukee, uh, Chicago, things like that. The accent is general American. It just doesn't have a lot of the markers of other more like <laughs> signified American accents. So yeah, sometimes my like a little bit of Southern comes out for me on certain words, but same, but not enough for me to say I have a Southern accent. Same, yeah. By and large, we're just general American. That's fine. I'll just be general any day. Yay, general. Uh, <laughs> no, but. We have an exciting episode planned for y'all. Um, I know my case is super fucked up. I was talking to Brittany about it earlier today that there's, I don't know, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a real messed up thing that happens that I was like, that doesn't even make the top five of like worst things this person did. Oh, mine's also insanely fucked up. And I literally, the second I say who I'm doing, it's going to be obvious. Fair. But before we get into all of our cases and our wine and all the fucked up stuff, let's talk about the best people, the least fucked upness, our wonderful Patreon supporters. So we have um, a new Cabernet Sauvignon convict that I want to welcome, Sarah Copas. Thank you so much for joining the family. I hope you are enjoying all of the murder minis, bottle talk episodes, and I cannot wait to hear your uh, topic idea for an upcoming episode. Yes, I, again, we've talked about this over and over. We love it when you guys come in as a Cabernet Sauvignon Convict and pick the topics because y'all do such an amazing job and we love them. So welcome, Sarah. Um, if you don't know about Patreon, what what are you doing? Like, go check it out. Like, we tell you about it every episode. Yeah, do you want to be in the awesome (laughs) family like Sarah? Check out Patreon and join us. And also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday, 
I know you can follow us on Spotify. Um, so if you guys didn't know, we are out on Spotify. They The podcaster thing is no longer in the beta version. So like there's a ton of podcasts out there mm-hmm. and you can find us there as well if you already, you know, if you're streaming on Spotify. Okay, like Tyler said, we obviously have a topic that, you know, has to do with the down under, but like Australia, not anything dirty. Genitalia. (laughs) So today's topic is Australian killers. And y'all, Australia is to me, okay, so I really want to go there so, so bad. Oh my God, same. But there's also a big part of Australia that's kind of frightening. I mean, like, they've got all, like, the snakes and the spiders, and it's, like, death is around every corner, whether it's nature or what seems to be a really crazy killer. Because, although I I will say if you Google something like Australian killers, you are going to find the worst. Like, those are the ones that are going to come up. (laughs) This is a topic that I'm really excited to do, And I know when I picked it, Tyler was all about it as well. Yes. Because we both have case, already had cases in mind that Mm -hmm. are, this is going to be a rocking episode, you guys. Uh, Buckle your seatbelts and prepare for some madness. And I'm just going to go ahead and put out the disturbing warning right now. Yeah. Yeah. This is (laughs) going to be one that uh, will have a disturbing flag. Big, big red flag. There you go. Yeah. It's a red flag. It's a disturbing red flag. When you wear rose-colored <laughs> glasses, red flags just look like any other kind of flag. Okay. No. Um, but, for real, I'm super excited about this. I also, regardless, you know, one thing that y'all should remember, because it's very true, no matter how fucked up these cases are, Australia's still awesome. Of and course. And I just want all of our Australian listeners to like email Qantas and please make your flights cheaper because <laughs> like because I want cheap... I want to come. Yeah, the cheapest I've seen is like $1000 LA to Sydney, which I, I was going to say is not bad. It that is. $1000 is a lot to spend on a flight. But um I want to visit. I, will I have say... a I have a dream trip in mind, like a 3 week trip of Sydney, Melbourne, Going up the other side to, like, Darwin, then hitting over to Indonesia, hitting up Bali, uh, maybe doing some Southeast Asia. But, y'all, make your damn flights cheaper. I understand that, you know, it's a flight that's completely over water, and yet it's still, like, a 17-hour flight. But still, come on, y'all. I will say, I saw multiple (laughs) flight deals this last summer from DFW to Melbourne, like 400 to 500 bucks. So Okay, well, thank that, you for forwarding those to me. <laughs> didn't know you wanted to go to Australia this past summer. But I'll keep an eye out for you or you could also look. But just just True. FYI, they do have moments where it goes down and it's like that's when I, I feel like you should just buy one to go. Absolutely. Like you see a cheap ticket, you just buy it and you're like, "Well, I'll figure it out later." So, okay. Before we get into today's horrific Australian killers and the crimes that they committed, we are going to pop our bottles of wine because I am very excited about the one I'm about to drink and I'm really excited to tell you guys about it. I'm excited about mine. I also just really, really want some wine. Same. It is Friday night. 
I need some wine. I actually didn't work today. It was wonderful. I not honestly, I'm super jealous. I worked today. <laughs> I honestly did podcast stuff pretty much all day, but it was a very relaxing day. I guess read about murder because apparently that's what I do at the end of a long week to unwind. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people do read about murder. I know, well, I know one of the things that I have gotten into, and I know I'm very late on the train. I have listened to them before, but I've just had a new resurgence uh, with My Favorite Murder, where I've kind of been binging, and I've talked about it before. I'm not a big podcast person, but damn, it's good. And it's, I mean, I'm like relaxing, lounging, like, oh, what a peaceful day, listening to them be like, and then he was strangled and beaten to death, and his body thrown into the quarry. And I'm like relaxing, like, oh, that sounds lovely. I mean, I mean I that's totally... not my reaction, but... <laughs> but I totally get what you're saying. Um, it's what I listen to. I've been listening... I've mentioned this before, but I'm still on my binger of last podcast on the left. I mean, I've got years and years of podcasts of theirs to listen to, so binge won't Fair. end anytime soon. But I listen to it every morning when I get ready, and every morning on my commute home. I mean, every afternoon, evening on my commute home, so... Yeah. The wine I'm going to be having tonight is the 2014 Monte Antico. It's a Toscana from Tuscany, Italy. And Monte Antico means ancient mountain. And Monte Antico is Neil and Maria Imsom's, like, their tribute to Tuscany. Their 40-year passion and experience led them to create their own label, along with their good friend Franco Bernabe, who was a, he's a master in Italian winemaking. And they've styled the quintessential Tuscan grape, which is Sangiovese. And they've highlighted everything it has to offer. And they complement it with just a bit of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon to have it all come together. So Mm. it's a blend that is 85% Sangiovese, 10% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 5% Merlot. So just a tiny bit of Merlot there at the end. It's been aged in an oak barrel for a year and then six months in the bottle. It's definitely a Tuscan classic, very deep ruby color with some garnet reflections. It has a bouquet of leather, black cherries, licorice, and plums. It's a medium to full-bodied wine with ripe red fruit on the palate, subtle notes of vanilla and violets that all like harmonize and linger in your mouth. And those notes interlace with the soft tannins and this very like silky texture. So it's gonna it's a really perfect blend and very well rounded. And James Suckling actually gave it 91 points and noted that it's really one of the best of value Italian reds on the market today. And he advises not to age it, drink it right now. And it's a perfect match for cheese, pasta, and all meat dishes. So literally, basically all the food that I eat. All meat dishes. All every meat. single one of them. All of the meat you could imagine. Um, and it is a screw top. And it's this like gorgeous Italian label that just oh, makes I me want to be in this. Tuscany so bad. So it's from like Hillside Vineyards. And it's got like... Neil Impsum, it's got like their little label on it. Um, again, and this is the 2014, and it was on sale at Central Market for, I think, $10. So it's nice. it's originally maybe like 12 so it's not an expensive bottle, but I saw it was on sale, and I was like, yes, I need a Toscana in my life. So yes. I'm going to 
pour my glass while you get your wine yeah. ready to tell me about it. Well, the wine that I'll be drinking today is the 2018 Idlewright Cabernet Franc from France. And Idlewright might sound familiar because a few episodes ago you did a rosé, didn't you? I did. I did. They had that rosé of Pinot Noir, and it was yes. very different. Yes. So this is a Cabernet Franc from Bordeaux. So kind of taking it to the classics. Uh, Cabernet Franc being one of the most well-known grapes out of the Bordeaux region. And Idlewright Wines in general has just been lauded by critics and customers. And this Cab Franc in particular was made utilizing techniques that were perfected in the Bordeaux region. It's a gentle process and it really draws out the different flavors and qualities that make a Cab Franc such a great, amazing grape. So this wine is made using a very gentle extraction techniques and doing that really lets the Cab Franc shine. You get these deep fruit flavors of raspberry, black cherry, and pomegranate, but they're boistered and kind of work right alongside flavors of vanilla, hibiscus, and rosemary. So some of those strong herbal floral flavors that I feel like you don't often see in a red, but they're what make a Cab Franc like pop. That sounds so good. I can't wait for you to try this because I know that you're iffy on Cab Francs. Yeah, so I'm. I've I've had a couple before, and I'm, I was pretty met on them. But this one sounds really good. And where is so, this one from again? Bordeaux. Oh, it is from Bordeaux. Okay. Yes. So this wine, like when it comes to body and acidity, it's pretty medium, but it is quite high when it comes to tannins. And it pairs perfectly with red tomato-based sauces, roasted vegetables, or even like a wood-fired pizza, which I feel like combines the red sauce and roasted vegetables. And dear God, I want a nice, like, real margarita pizza or something to go along with this. Yes. And mine is not a screw top. I know, I've been picking all the screw tops lately, apparently. Like, I haven't yeah. used my corker in a while. That looks nice and deep. Like, it's a really dark red. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're filling my glass up. Well, I never know, because, you know, cab francs are ones that really need to breathe. And, you know, I never know... I can't remember if, if you, like, stream it in slowly, does that breathe? Or if you, glug, 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 does that make it breathe? I, I think honestly when you have no it, idea. <laughs> it doesn't have a, too strong of an odor in the glass. When I first opened the bottle, it was very strong. I was like, whoo, there we are. I love but, how you chose the word odor, which is generally <laughs> um, the connotation for a bad smell. <laughs> okay, um, uh, aroma there. Aroma also isn't great, but scent. It's there. better. <laughs> no, so mine, it smells so fruity, which I'm really surprised about. I'm not used to Tuscany wines smelling this fruity. I don't know. A Sangiovese, sometimes. I'm getting those red fruits and that leather, cherries, a little bit of licorice at the end of my nose. The end of my nose, the tip of my nose, the back of my nose, whatever. <laughs> Your sinuses? <laughs> uh-huh, my sinuses pick up on the licorice. 
And um, I really want to try this wine. This smells really good. Mine smells almost medicinal. Like I get notes of... It's those herbs. Yeah. It's the herbs. I almost get notes of like turpentine, which, you know, generally is not good. But, (laughs) you know, wine, you can smell anything in wine and it doesn't mean anything bad. That's true. All right. Are you definitely some fruits and stuff too? But yeah, I'm ready to let's cheers. All right. Let's drink. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. This is really good. So I'm going to say some descriptions that y'all might be like, that's fucking weird. But um, the first taste that fills my mouth, and I promise I didn't like cut my mouth when I was drinking (laughs) it, but is almost like a coppery kind of mineral flavor, kind of like blood. Again, did not cut my mouth, I think, but it has that like minerality, that like um, sharpness of like copper. I think that's a lot of the like herbaceousness going on. This is great wine, definitely not heavy on the fruit, which it's a Cab Franc, so I didn't expect it to be super fruit forward, but it's a nice balanced level of fruit. It's not so um, like herbal that it doesn't even taste like a wine. Like it still does have those dark fruit flavors in it, but they're very much not, they're working together with like the herbs, the vanilla, the more, I don't know, like earth rounded flavors kind of thing. I'm really jealous because you know, Cab Franc is my favorite and for you to love it means it's a really good one. It's a really good one. <laughs> so I'm really jealous I'm not splitting that with you. However, I will say I am very happy with my Toscana. It definitely has those black cherries and the plum, but it's mixed with a lot of the leather and I can taste a, a tiny bit of that oak, but more in the like woody taste of the oak, not that mm. vanilla taste that oak gives it. I get more of that violet than I do vanilla. Um, mm. This one is delicious. It is definitely, the tannins are very soft. There's not a bite at all at the back of this wine. It doesn't um, burn at all. Cause you know how sometimes tannins can burn a little bit at the end as they finish. Yeah. These are super soft, very smooth and silky. I highly recommend it. I absolutely see why James Suckling gave this one a 91 and why you need to drink it like now. Fair. One thing I did want to note about mine that I just thought of when you were talking about uh, the oakiness on yours is I think one of the things that makes this one so interesting is it's a deep red that is neither fruity nor oaky. Because I feel like with most deep red wines, if you have one that isn't very oaky, it generally leans more into the fruit flavors and vice versa. If you have one that is really oaky, it kind of leans away from those fruit flavors. This one leans away from both. Like I'm not getting much oak at all in it. So it's very interesting. That is interesting. Also, side note, do you like how neither of us for this episode picked any Australian wine? I almost did, but again, I saw this wine and I was like, I want a Toscana. I had this one already that I bought a few days ago for uh, episodes, and I was like, well, I'll use this one. I really want to drink like a cab something today. We've done quite a few Australian wines, though. I have. I'm a big fan of all Australian wines. I don't think I've had a single one I didn't enjoy. The only one I've had that's close to it, but... I'm not even going to say not enjoy, because it's still 
definitely a wine I will drink and I will enjoy. But it also reminds me of college because it's kind of the wine <laughs> I started drinking. Yellowtail. Oh, that's right. I forgot about Yellowtail. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. I would go buy a magnum of Yellowtail Chardonnay when I wanted like a step up from Barefoot where I was like, I'm going to get something oh a little nice. <laughs> See, I didn't... Barefoot was not one that I really ever drank. I kind of went from uh, Franzia when I wanted white. Or actually, Franzia in general... To when I started buying bottles, it was Yellowtail. And I I still enjoy Yellowtail. Don't buy it anymore. But if I remember correctly, I'm still probably pretty fond of a Yellowtail cab. Yeah. Yellowtail, not a a bad wine. It's a solid, you know, inexpensive wine that's available everywhere. One of these days, we need to do a wine theme of, like, just both pick wines we had in college. So it's like college wines. Ooh. (laughs) Yes. Oh god. Pick a, get a get a box of sunset blush Franzia. I'll just get a <laughs> bottle of relax Riesling. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that or some Reuniti Lambrusco. God. <laughs> All the college wines. Oh god. Uh, okay. But we have our wines, neither of which are Australian. We have our topic, which is Australian. Extremely. So Brittany, tell me about your uh, just horrific, super messed up murder. All right, are you ready for this? No, I'm usually not. You're never ready, but you need to be ready. You ready? I don't think I am ready <laughs> for this jelly. All right, let's go. The case I'm doing is the Backpacker Murders, also known as serial killer Ivan Milat. I don't, okay. I don't know if I know this one. I think I do. I also know that there's a lot of backpack murders that go on in the Outback, so... Well, once I get into this, you'll... You have heard of him. You may not know all the details. I didn't until I did all of my research, but he's a monster. I used quite a few sources for this one. So, an article in Independent from the UK called Inside Story, Grizzly Tale of the Backpack Killer by Robert Milliken. I used an article in Vice titled Inside the Infamous Forest Where a Serial Killer Left His Victims by Julian Morgans. I used the biography website and then also an article in the Sydney Morning Herald by Tim Barlass and Lucy Cormack. Ivan Milad is best known as the Backpack Killer. Between September 1992 and November 1993, the bodies of seven young men and women were found decomposing in Belanglo State Forest, which is about two hours southwest of Sydney. It's not really known why Ivan chose Belanglo in the first place, except that it was isolated and within about an hour of his house. Okay. Ivan Robert Marco Milat was born in Australia on December 27th, 1944, and he was the fifth of 14 children in a Croatian immigrant family. That's just so many siblings. The Malats kept to themselves, making reliable information about Ivan's childhood and upbringing pretty difficult to obtain. There's not much information out there. But he did grow up in a dirt-floored shack in the outer Sydney suburb of Moorbank, And his mother seemed to always be pregnant, and his father was 18 years her senior and typically a pretty violent man. 
Ivan exhibited psychopathic tendencies from a very young age, and he was later described as good-looking, muscular, and he had a fascination for hunting and guns, and he took great care of his appearance. His parents were really strict, but when they had 14 kids, sometimes discipline was difficult to do. And so yeah. <laughs> and so Milad and his brothers had a reputation in the neighborhood for getting into a lot of trouble, and there were numerous police visits to their home when they were growing up. Starting at the age of 17, Milad was constantly in trouble with both the police and the courts um, on charges as varied as like housebreaking, car thefts, and armed robberies. But in 1971, Ivan was put on trial for the alleged rape of two female hitchhikers who testified that he'd been armed with a knife during those attacks. However, the prosecution failed to make a very convincing case against him and he was acquitted on the rape charges. So now fast forward to 1990. And British backpacker Paul Onions was hitchhiking south from Sydney in search of work. He was picked up by Ivan Milat on January 25th, and Milat was initially, like, very friendly. He introduced himself as Bill, but Onions found Milat's personal questions about his plans kind of unnerving. Like, it just, he was prying a little too much. And mm-hmm. Onions got concerned for his safety when Milat began ranting and making racist and xenophobic remarks. Milat pulled his car to the side of the road, and Onions tried to get out at this time, but Milat pulled out a revolver and told him to put on his seatbelt. Onions managed to bolt for his safety at that moment. He left his backpack, which contained all of his possessions, it had his passport. And despite Milat's threat that he would shoot Onions, Onions managed to flag down a car and get in the car and immediately asked this woman to take him to the nearest police station so he could report this incident. Eventually, Onions returned to the UK, but he wasn't aware at how narrow of an escape he actually came to. God, for someone who's now known as the backpack killer and Onions got away. And he was a backpacker. Yeah, ugh. Hitchhiking is just not a good idea, y'all. It's not, ever. Don't ever hitch a ride. Like, we've learned this. Now, granted, I guess they figured it out in the 90s in Australia when we figured it out in the 70s here in America. You don't hitchhike. Yeah, Yeah, take a bus, take a train, have a friend drive you. I don't know. Well, I mean... They're backpackers. They're walking. A lot. I guess. (laughs) Across the country? But they're in the Belanglo State Forest. They're obviously, like, hiking and camping. I guess that's true. <laughs> okay. In 1992, the first of Milat's victims was discovered, and it was two British backpackers, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. They were both 22 years old. They had both arrived to Australia separately, but teamed up to travel together, They were found in an area of Belanglo State Forest known as Executioner's Drop. Their bodies were discovered by a couple of people who were out on a run on September 19th. And like we've said before, if you go out on runs and jogs, you're eventually going to find a dead body. Yeah, don't do it. Don't jog. That's what happened to these runners. Uh, Buy a treadmill. Buy a treadmill. People on treadmills don't find bodies. Unless you already have it at your house, and then there's a lot of other questions we have for you. True. Both bodies were found, like, face down, covered in branches, 
and their bodies were found not far from where Paul Onion's attack had happened just a couple years earlier. The two of them had been missing since May of that year, so May 1992, so it had been about five months or so. Joanne Walters had been stabbed repeatedly, including one wound to her spine that might have paralyzed her while the killer continued this vicious attack. The zip of her jeans had been undone, but the top button was still fastened, so as if she had been partially stripped and probably sexually assaulted, and then buttoned up hastily after the attack. But her remains, unfortunately, were too badly decomposed to actually establish whether a sexual attack had occurred. Caroline Clark had also been stabbed repeatedly, but then she was shot in the head ten times. Oh my, ten times in the head? In the head. She was wearing a blindfold, meaning potentially she had been blindfolded and marched into the woods before she was shot. She had similar spinal wounds to Walter's with the stabbing, and there were four bullets that remained inside her skull, and they were preserved for forensic analysis, and detectives were confident that they were going to be able to use those to track the weapon that was responsible for killing her. A round, like, stone fireplace had also been built near the bodies. So, like, you d- you make a little fire circle when you're out camping. One of those mm-hmm. had been built, and there were cigarette butts and spent bullet cases all recovered from the scene. However, despite a ton of forensic evidence, police made little progress over the following weeks, and they sought the assistance of a forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Rod Milton. Milton concluded that the killer was probably in his mid-30s and that he had a history of aggression and was really familiar with the surrounding terrain and that he was probably motivated by the pleasure of inflicting pain. But Milton did not think that this killer was a serial killer. This was something that the media was portraying him to be. But at this point in time, there had just been two bodies found. Police and investigators are not ready to say they have a serial killer on their hands. In October 1993, there was the discovery of a second set of bodies, which injected some new life into the case. Up until this point, it had mostly gone stale. The badly decomposed remains were those of Australian nationalists James Gibson and Deborah Everest, who had gone missing in 1989. They were both 19 years old. Wow, so like four years before they were found. Yeah. They were the first in this list of victims to go missing, and also the first to be murdered. They had checked out of their cheap hotel in Sydney's Surrey Hills in December 1989 and set out for their home city, Melbourne. They were planning to stop on the way at this conservation festival in Albury, which is on the New South Wales-Victoria border. The day after they left Sydney, though, a walker found Mr. Gibson's damaged camera on the roadside at Galston Gorge, which is north of Sydney, but he didn't know that it was something to report until more of his belongings had been found and it was, you know, he was in the news as a missing person. Despite the environmental damage wrought on all of the clothing, Gibson's zipper was intact, it was open, but the top button was fastened. So this was exactly like the zipper of the pants that Joanne Walters was wearing. Post-mortem examinations again revealed this paralyzing spinal knife wound inflicted in a very similar manner to the earlier British victims. And they also found another fireplace that had been built near the crime scene. 
which made the police pretty certain they were dealing with the same killer. Superintendent Clive Small led the investigation and set up a large task force to progress. A massive manual search of the extended Belanglo forest area was initiated, and it took almost a month before the next victim was found on November 1st. German national Simone Schmidl, who was 21, had been missing since January 1991. She planned to hitchhike from Sydney to Melbourne, where she'd meet her mom at the airport. They were supposed to go camping, but Simone never showed. After a day, her mom contacted the police before embarking on six weeks of frantic searching for her daughter. Oh, it's supposed to be, that was supposed to be vacation yeah. with them together. Instead, she's searching for her missing daughter. And, and unfortunately, she ended up flying home alone back to Germany. At the crime scene, the trademark fireplace and discarded bullet shells were close by, and Simone had the same spinal injury. After three more days of searching in the forest, two final victims were found. Also from Germany, Anha Havshid, who was 20, and her boyfriend, Gabar Nuzbauer, who was 21. They'd been missing since just after Christmas 1991. They left Backpackers Inn at Sydney's King's Cross on Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas in 1991, to hitch south to Adelaide and then north to Darwin, where they planned to fly home with some stops in Asia along the way. Oh, so like the trip I described earlier. Yeah, they were going to do your trip. Do you want to do it now? I mean, yes. (laughs) Just don't go hiking in the forest. Um... Reports stated that the couple was seen a few days later after they left Sydney in a caravan park in Darwin, where they were said to have missed their flight to Indonesia. They found a discarded airline ticket near the couple's bodies in the forest. Gabor's jeans had been unzipped, but again with that top button still fastened, and he had been strangled as well as shot numerous times. The bullets recovered at the scene were a perfect match to the previous crime scenes. Anja's body was missing the head completely, which appeared to have been severed by a machete or a sword. It was at this time, given the number of victims were now at seven, the police accepted that they had to announce they were looking for a serial killer. There was no more avoiding making that statement. So between 1989 and 1992, Milot killed roughly every 12 months, targeting young travelers of both genders, always as they thumbed rides from Sydney to Melbourne. When his victims vanished, there was often some lag time before anyone noticed, and when they did, there was nothing to differentiate their disappearances from the other 35,000 people who would go missing every year. The police picture of the last movements of the murdered hitchhikers contains a series of very common threads. They had all stayed in Sydney backpacker hotels. They'd all been careful to inform relatives and friends of their plans before they left Sydney. And they all seemed to have been headed south along the Hume Highway, um, which was a main link between Sydney and Melbourne, and the road that passes through Bowrow. However, with the variety of methods that the killer was using... Sexual assault, beating, strangulation, stabbing, shooting, beheading, etc. Narrowing down suspects was pretty difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's not... Again, the MO, there's a lot of links, but with so many different, like, weapons and ways of doing it, that's 
gotta be tough. Various reports, however, led police to the Millat family, and in particular Ivan. But they had no evidence against him. They just had people reporting that they should look into this family. However, in April 1994, Paul Onions, remember him? Good old Mm -hmm. Paul Onions? He contacted Australian authorities about his 1990 attack. His information was also corroborated when the woman who had rescued him, so the woman who picked him up in her car and driven him to the police station, she also called the investigators just to be like, yeah, no, that this happened. Police determined that if Onions could identify Ivan as his attacker, then police could tie Ivan to the other murders. So investigators flew Onions out to Australia from the UK, and he did identify Ivan from a video lineup. Police then obtained a warrant to search the Millot properties, and on May 22, 1994, their raid revealed countless pieces of evidence that tied Ivan to all of the crimes, including like personal effects from the victims, he had a ton of ammunition, and also a long, curved cavalry sword, which would be suitable for beheading, was found in a locked cupboard at the home of the Millots. So Ivan was arrested and taken into custody for questioning, where he was very evasive and uncooperative. He was initially charged with the attack on Paul Onions, and then subsequently with the seven murders, once the ballistic evidence came back and it matched his weapon. He hired the very same lawyer who had represented him during his 1971 rape trial, and the acquittal that he got from that, John Marsden. But then he fired him after Marsden advised Millot to plead guilty. Millot's trial began in March 1996, and for the trial, he was being charged with the seven murders as well as the attack on Paul Onions, and he pleaded not guilty to all charges. Onion was the first prosecution witness who was followed by testimony from the family members of the victims. Then hundreds of exhibits and crime scene photos followed, as well as expert witness testimony. There was so much that it took prosecution 12 weeks to present their case. The defense then had their turn, and they called Milot to the stand. He denied any involvement in the killings, but performed really poorly under cross-examination and made a really bad impression on the jury. The defense tried to imply that other members of the Milot family had committed the crimes and that they like set Ivan up, but the case they presented was not credible. On July 27th, 1996, following this 15-week trial, which is a long one, the jury returned after three days of deliberation, finding Ivan Milat guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to six years imprisonment for the attack on Paul Onions. And- oh, okay. <laughs> Just for the attack. I was like, wait, are you fucking... He was sentenced to six years from prison for the murders. No, no, no. That's it. <laughs> and then seven consecutive life sentences for each of the murders. There we go. Okay. Millot continued to deny that he had any involvement, and he said he was completely innocent. He was first incarcerated in Midland Prison, where he would stay for nearly a year. In May 1997, authorities foiled a well-planned jailbreak attempt masterminded by Millot. After they discovered the plot, all the inmates who were involved were separated, and his accomplice, George Savas, was found hanged in his cell the next morning. Oh, shit. Milat was then transferred to the maximum security wing of Goldburn Prison near Sydney. After a blade was discovered in his cell, Milat spent time in solitary confinement. So he is not your model prisoner here. Nope. 
In July 2001, his initial appeal against his sentence was denied, and in 2015, his final appeal was refused. So, Milad is likely to remain in prison for the rest of his natural life. Police believe that he committed many more murders, but with multiple additional inquiries that they have tried, Milad has yet to be convicted of any additional crime. And in November 2010, Ivan Milad's nephew, teenager Matthew Milad, lured a school friend named David Ochterlone to the Belonglo Forest in promise of weed and a drink for his birthday. David went along only to be murdered with an axe. Allegedly, Matthew told his friends that he was just doing what his family does, and the day after, he even bragged, Do you know what my family is known for? I killed someone last night. What the fuck? Matthew was sentenced to 43 years in jail. So... Ivan keeps popping up in the news, and in May 2019, at the age of 74, Ivan was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. In the wake of this, he's being urged by police to admit to other murders before he dies of cancer. In August 2019, so just last month, Ivan wrote a letter from his deathbed in Long Bay Jail Hospital to claim that he was framed for the murders of seven backpackers. He's preparing right now for his third round of chemo, and he has less than a 50% chance of survival. If you're interested in hearing more about Ivan, journalist Mark Whitaker wrote one of the most thorough books on Ivan, and it's called Sins of the Brother. Um, So check that book out. Obviously, I only skimmed the surface of this lunatic, but yeah, that is Australia's one of their most infamous serial killers, Ivan Milat. Shit. All right. So what Australian killer are you going to tell me about? So this case that I'm going to dive into, um, I feel like I say this more and more often, but it is one of the most fucked up cases I have read. At this point, they're all blurring together. They're all super fucked up. But this one, there's a couple parts that it is just, you will sit there and say, what the fuck in your car? Oh, that's right. You already did tell me who you did. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm doing the case of the murderer, Catherine Knight. That bitch. Damn. She is literally 100% that bitch, but in the most negative of ways. Yeah. (laughs) So, the sources that I used, and because all of the articles that I used um, give away a big portion of it, I'm not going to tell you all the title of the articles, but I used Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page for Catherine Knight, an article from All That's Interesting by Katie Serena, an article from the New Zealand Herald by Lexi Cartwright, and an article from Investigation Discovery by Mike McPadden. Good ol' ID. We haven't used them for a source in, okay, like a handful of episodes. It's been a hot minute. I used a documentary for one because they're everywhere. I also have, like, a dish or whatever now. Like, I I have on demand. That's the word I'm looking for. Oh, I, this is how gay I am. (laughs) You said dish, and I was like, ooh, what's the tea? Was literally my first thought. Not, like, even a plate or, like, you know, the company. 
You're like, so I have this dish, and I'm like, ooh, yes, dish queen. Tell me about it. No, I have DirecTV or whatever, or On Demand. There, there are so many of the words. I haven't had cable in years until now, but I can get all of these freaking ID documentaries. It is so dangerous. I, I literally could sit and watch documentaries for hours. Netflix, Hulu, HBO, On Demand. Y'all, I'm fucked, but also blessed, because I can watch them all. Hashtag blessed, hashtag fucked. <laughs> so Catherine Knight was born and raised in a really unconventional and pretty dysfunctional family in Aberdeen, South New Wales, Australia, in 1955. Before she was born, her mom had previously been married and had four sons before being literally forced out of this very conservative town for having an affair with her husband's co-worker. They forced her out so, of the town? Yeah, so her family and her uh, husband at the time's family had, like, really good names and were well-known in this town. And she had an affair with his co-worker slash best friend. And because it's the 50s, the town forced her out. Yeah. Like, her and her new lover out. Yeah. So... All four of their sons either stayed behind with the father, two of them stayed with the dad, and two of the others moved in with an aunt. So none of them went with her mom. This is very 50s. Like, all of the The fact that they kicked her out of the town, that her kids were like, nope. Like, yeah. Yeah. So her mom left with her new lover and had four additional children with him, including a set of twin girls. And Catherine Knight was the younger of the twins. Catherine's dad was an alcoholic, and he was just openly very violent and intimidating, and he would rape his wife up to ten times a day. This was the best friend Um, that she ran away with? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Catherine's mom, Barbara, in turn, would often tell her daughters intimate details about her sex life and how much she hated sex and how much she hated men. And later in life, when Catherine was grown up, I'm not sure how old she was, but I I think late teens, early 20s, um, Catherine complained to her mom that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act that she did not want anything to be a part of. And her mom told her to just put up with it and stop complaining. Wow. With what you've told me about the marriage that her mom was in, I'm surprised she told her daughter to just, I don't know. It's also the 70s, which, I mean, is after, I don't know, it's kind of like one of the big transition periods, at least in American history, of women being able to, like, gain rights in marriage. True. So, but still, to tell your daughter that. I know. Um, And Catherine also claims that she was frequently sexually assaulted by several members of her family, uh, which continued until she was 11. In high school, Catherine became a loner, and she was remembered by most of her classmates as just this bully who stood over smaller children. And at school, she assaulted at least one boy with a weapon, and she was once injured by a teacher who was found to have been acting in self-defense. But on the other hand, when she, like, wasn't in a rage, when she wasn't mad, she was a pretty model student, and she often earned awards for her good behavior. So it's very much this dual personality. Definitely. When she eventually did leave school at the age of 15, she hadn't 
learned how to read or write. How do you how do you get that far in school without reading or writing? I honestly don't know, but she got employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. And about a year later, she left to start what she called her dream job, which was cutting up awful at the local slaughterhouse. Oh, geez, her dream job. That's her dream job. At the slaughterhouse, she was quickly promoted to deboning and given her own set of butcher's knives. And she fucking loved these knives. Like, I I feel like she loved these knives more than she loved anyone for the rest of her life because she hung them above her bed. They were knives. And they were knives. That's what? Wow. Also, someone. Also, above your bed? I know. I feel like that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Like, what if there's an earthquake? I don't think there's earthquakes in Australia, but just in case. But also, you know. Loving your job, it, it's it's important. I mean, you don't have to love your job. We don't all love our jobs, and that's okay. Your job doesn't have to be your passion. But clearly for her, it was. But this is an interesting career path to just absolutely love. I, I feel like there are some red flags there. Yeah. I'm imagining what would be the instrument, like the the object that is the physical like embodiment of my job to put above my bed. And I guess a keyboard? Mine would be an ad. But back to Catherine Knight. You know, when when she loves her job, there are multiple things you could think of. Like, you would want to say, like, oh, she loves being able to provide, you know, nice, hearty, good meats to the town. But that's not the case. She liked to butcher Cut. and slaughter yeah. these animals. Like, the the parts of the job that everyone else is like, I just have to do this because this is what I do. That's what she loved. Well, and you mentioned that this is, like, creepy and foreboding. The really foreboding part of it is when people ask, like, why do you have them hung above your bed? Like, what the fuck, Catherine? She would say, you know, that she had them there so they would always be handy if I needed them. The fuck you need a set of butcher knives above your bed? I mean, we're going to learn exactly why she needed them, but come on. I feel like you say that to someone and they're like, Catherine, you need to go to jail. (laughs) Like, just come on. I mean, come on, Katie. Although I will say on the opposite side, there are the people that have like their gun in the nightside table. Which I feel like that's different, though, than having them like displayed. Because I'm is, imagining they're, they're, like, them, like, they're strung up above the headboard, like delicately, like all of their blades shining in the light from the bedroom. Like window. I'm imagining in like, you know, an almost like half sun motif of just like knives you know basically she wants her bed to look like i don't know the iron throne i was literally about to say that the iron throne (laughs) yeah so just saying i mean not because i don't think there's that many knives in a butcher set but i mean i don't know i don't have a butcher set do you did you get yours in the mail i know you ordered one i haven't ordered it yet it's just on my list but they're all (laughs) copper knives and i love them literally everything i want is on my list it's like ever growing and it has things like you know bamboo um fork and spoon and knife and whatnot Mm because so i can stop using plastic at work all the way to like oh there's a shampoo i want to try and batteries like my list is crazy all of all of our um, silverware at work is either, like, metal and ceramic balls and stuff, or it's all compostable, which I love. I love um, that. 
Side note, just for one sentence, I'm really trying to live more low waste. And so I've been doing a lot of like research and you know me, I always keep like old salsa jars and pasta jars. Like I already have you a do. ton of stuff. And so I've started just You're like, like, Ooh, I could use this old salsa jar for when I take soup to work. And I'm like, Brittany, <laughs> when have you ever taken soup to work? And you're like, I don't know, but I might start soon. You know, because our Southern accent that we dis- discussed earlier, we don't have. It comes out when I talk about soap. Anyway. <laughs> soap. <laughs> soup, not soap. gotcha but anyway like just trying to live that zero waste life so uh i'm sure if if you ever look at my amazon list i've got so many things on there but you know what i'm doing i'm doing the number one step in how to actually transition to low waste use what you have don't throw it away just because it's in a plastic container because that's even more wasteful than just using it i mean what i do is i actually like to um go to the recycling bin and take out the recycling and throw it into a fire (laughs) and just let the fumes waft. That's what I'm doing for my part of the environment. That's not even funny, dude. This world is like imploding. (laughs) I I know that Earth's lungs are burning. We're all dying. It's fine. We can laugh at the void and that's all we can do. There's a lot more we can do, but we're not going to go down this rabbit hole. Get back to Catherine Knight. Okay, so Catherine Knight, she is this lady with these knives above her bed. And it's not the kind of knives you'd see in Bondi Beach. It is the kind of knives that someone is going to use for murder. You sound like you're trying to be like a travel show, like that kind of like inflection in your voice. Listen, I've watched a lot of Instant Hotel. If y'all haven't watched it, it's this Australian reality show. It's basically... These families are competing with their Airbnbs. It's amazing. You have to watch it. I watched the preview and I'm already hooked. Y'all, he's serious. It's worth watching. But anyways, back to Catherine. So back to the slaughterhouse where Catherine is killing it. (laughs) Literally. Scary. Uh, Well, yeah, she's great at her job. She likes the knives a little too much. This is where she met her coworker, David Collette. And... Colette is also an alcoholic, and he's prone to fist fights whenever the opportunity presented itself. And surprisingly, he found that Catherine, she held her own, and she'd never hesitate to join him in a fight. He also, when he was younger, his best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident. And later in life, he was present when a train hit a school bus and killed six children in 1968, and he was there to help rescue the injured and remove the bodies of these children. Oh my god. So these these events likely were, like, the reason for his heavy drinking. And honestly, I cannot blame him. I, I can't imagine a worse experience. So he drank a lot, and he was violent, but he soon realized that Catherine was... Not just able to, like, hold her own, but she was able to, like, actually do damage with her fists. And it was not long before she was dominating him. In 1974, she even convinced him to marry her, even though at the time he was very drunk. She don't take no shit, and Catherine, guess what she wants? 
I mean, it's by it's, any means necessary. Yeah, it's really creepy in her case, but like literally, she gets what she wants. Yeah, at the wedding, as soon as they arrived, Catherine's mom turned to Colette to give him some advice. And what I'm going to read his quote about it: "The old girl," referring to um, Catherine's mother. You're not going to try the accent while you actually read a quote. Uh, oh, okay. You know, fine. I'm just saying it's the one. Part I guess where, it's the one it legitimate opportunity. I have, I'm just going to straight up apologize to the entire country of Australia. And honestly, let's extend that to all of Oceania. I feel like New Zealand, Polynesia, y'all share in the pain of what's about to happen to your ears. <laughs> the old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill ya. Stare her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. Cheating on her. She'll fucking kill ya. And it was her mother talking. She told me she's got something loose. She's got a loose screw somewhere. Thank you. Thank you. This is me bowing to the applause. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I do voiceover work. Please contact my agent. Um, but yeah, literally, he's at the wedding about to marry her, and her mom is like, hey, you keep an eye on her, she'll fucking kill you. Yeah. Which, basically, what I'm imagining of her mom is, if any of y'all have seen uh, the Netflix show Russian Doll, her mom. That's kind of what I picture. Chloe Savigny is playing Catherine's mom, is playing Barbara in my mind. So, like, literally, though... How fucking scary would it be if at the wedding it's like, don't fuck up or she'll kill you from her mom. And he's like, I know. And oh. not even in not not in, in like the motherly, a... like, don't you mess this up. It's like literally like if you know, she will actually straight up murder. Like you. She'll kill you. You know how much she loves those knives. So you cross her wrong. You dead. And her prediction literally almost came true that fucking night. So on their wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle Colette, and she later explained that it was because he fell asleep after only having intercourse three times. Only three times. That's... People are spent, Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it, okay? Just because men can't have multiple orgasms does not mean you have any right to strangle them. You strangle men for other reasons. I only speak the facts. <laughs> but, like, also three times, like... Go to sleep. Maybe I've just had... <laughs> maybe I've just had shitty boyfriends, but I'm like, okay. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I yeah, three times. Way to go, girl. But aren't you, like, tired? Also, it's your wedding night. I... From talking to day. many of my friends who have been married, I, f- I feel like that's the last thing you want to do on your actual wedding night. You're exhausted. You've been in heels all damn day. You have... Had your freak out about something, because everyone needs a good freak out on their wedding day or else you're going to implode. Like, no. You've literally hosted and coordinated a party of possibly like 200 people. You don't want to fuck, you want to go to sleep. You haven't eaten, because (laughs) no one at their wedding actually has time to eat. That's why sometimes they have to, like, sneak you off to a fucking broom closet and be like, Here, we grab some shrimp cocktail. (laughs) Eat up, you have a speech to give. Honestly, this is why having, like, an actual, like, wedding with more than 20 people, I'm like, no, that's, no. 
Um, but also, do you think Catherine Knight wore heels at her wedding? She was probably like seven two if she did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I I would. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna wear heels, but. <laughs> If I wanted to wear heels, I would, regardless of how tall I am. Oh, honestly, that's true. Any, that's true. It doesn't matter if, how tall you are. Always wear heels if you want to. If any man or anyone is going to, like, get mad at you for being taller than them, fuck them. You don't need them. You know what you need to do? Step on them. They're a little ant to you if they're little short, tiny people. Thanks, man, says the short, tiny person. I'm an aunt. I know, well, <laughs> no, I'm just, but you would never tell someone. No, it's true. Can you not wear heels? You're taller than me. I, I will say one of my gigantic pet peeves, and people who are tall and have short friends, I think you need to hear this. Do not crouch down in a photo or tilt super awkwardly to look like you're leaning in. To somehow appear to be the same height as me because you think I'm uncomfortable being short. I'm not. I'm very comfortable in my body. I know my height. I am a short person. You look awkward. Don't kneel down. No one know. Like, everyone knows you are not the same height as me. We're friends. It's fine. It's called people have height differences. Stop trying to match. It's fine. If it bothers you that much, let's sit down. I'm just saying it drives me crazy. No, that's real. But also, like, this is hearkening way back, but, like, one of my best friends I went to prom with, she is six foot, and she asked me, she's like, you know, is it okay if I wear heels? And I'm 5'9", five 5'10", five if you look at my Tinder profile, but 5'9". And I was like, bitch, yes, wear your heels. She's six foot barefoot, and she wore her five-inch heels and was an Amazon fucking model. Just saying. Wear your damn heels. Wear your heels. If you're 4'10", if you're 6'10", wear your damn heels. Amen to that. All right, so Catherine Knight almost strangled her new husband. Well, she didn't almost strangle him. She did strangle him. But he didn't die. he, He did not die. So, as you can imagine, their marriage was violent. And on one occasion, a very pregnant Catherine burned all of Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan. The reason for all of this, uh, he'd arrived home late from a darts competition. I'm sorry, are we, is this the Looney Tunes? Is, is she Bugs Bunny? Like, who actually hit someone with a frying pan? I don't know. I'm like, to me, this is Bugs Bunny in Taylor Swift's Blank Space video. And I'm just very concerned and scared. I'm scared. So she, you know, hits him with a frying pan. And because this is not Looney Tunes, he is scared for his life. And he flees before collapsing in a neighbor's house. And neighbor, like, called the ambulance up. He went to the hospital and was treated because he had a severely fractured skull. She fried. I mean, I guess, yeah. This was probably like a cast iron skillet kind of pan yeah and it's not like a hit him it's like a she she swung yeah you know she was babe ruth i mean against his head that's gonna do some damage and clearly it did that's scary a fractured skull because you hit someone in the head wrong you kill them yeah their marriage would go on to last 10 more years and during their time together they had two daughters and one period of separation after kellett left Catherine in the middle of the night And he moved himself to Queensland. The next day, 
Catherine was seen pushing her newborn baby in a stroller down the street, violently throwing the stroller from side to side. Oh. And so passerby saw this and were like, oh, fuck no. And like called the police. And she was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression. And she spent a few weeks recovering. So after she was released from the hospital, Catherine took her two-month-old daughter, Melissa, to the train tracks. And just a few minutes before a train was going to come by, she placed her daughter on the train tracks and left her. What? Like she put it there and walked away? She put this two-month-old baby on the train tracks, walked away, knowing a train was coming. But she can't, she's two months old, she can't even roll yet. She can't even get off. She can't do anything. No. She's probably, like, I don't know, sleeping, crying, shitting, not moving. Like, that's... She's too young to do anything. Then, after placing her daughter on the train tracks and walking away, she stole an axe and walked into town and was swinging it, threatening to just kill a bunch of people. Wait, wait, wait. But, like, still, her baby is literally there. Did baby get hit by a train? So... A man who was known in the area as Old Ted, um, I think he was homeless. I'm not sure. He was foraging near the train line, so I think he was homeless something. He found Melissa and was like, what the fuck, there's a baby on the train tracks. And just a few minutes before the train passed, he picked her up and rescued her. Thank God, as Catherine is going through the city swinging an axe. Yeah. This is like literally... Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a few tweaks in real life. Yeah. I mean, I know Texas Chainsaw was based on a real murder in Wisconsin, but, you know, Ed Gein, but still, you get what I'm saying. Like, this, this is, is theatrical. fucking horrible. It's, it's exactly. a horror yes, movie. Yeah. So, Catherine was arrested, and again, she was taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but she apparently recovered and signed herself out the following day. I'm thinking she did not recover, but okay. Yeah, I don't think so, because just a couple days later, she slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded that this woman drive her to Queensland to find her husband. And this woman. Slicing her face open. Yeah, with one of her fucking butcher knives. So that's not a scratch. Chef's knives are sharp as fuck. Yeah, that's not a scratch. That's like a. She could probably stick her tongue out her cheek. Yeah. Jesus. So she slashes this woman's face, slices it, and is like, drive me to Queensland. I'm gonna find my husband. And thankfully, this woman was able to escape after they stopped at, like, a gas station. But by the time police arrived, Catherine had taken a young boy hostage and was threatening him with her knife. Thankfully, she was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms and... She was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm because... gonna ask you to back up just a tiny like two steps. They they attacked her with brooms. Yeah, they attacked her with brooms. I'm imagining is is that uh... like their sticks that like the police hitting? No, I think like an actual like, like an actual broom, like like Snow White sweeping the ground broom. But why was that their weapon of choice? Is my question. I imagine for reach. I oh I guess but they're police. I don't. Shouldn't they have something I, else in reach? I, I'm just saying, like brooms that threw me well, off. I, I don't understand. I don't know if police in at this point, I think 80s, 
Maybe still 70s. They maybe had maybe no weapons. I don't know if they had guns. So if it's like, and I don't, I don't know if tasers were really a thing yet. So I, I don't know. But they used brooms to disarm her, and it worked. Hey, as long as it works, honestly, it doesn't matter what you're using. So at the psychiatric hospital, she told nurses that she intended to kill the mechanic at this gas station because he had been the one who had repaired Kellett's car, her husband's car. So he could leave. Which, yeah, which, you know, because he had the fixed car, he was able to leave. So she wanted to kill him. And then after that, she was going to kill both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. His poor mama didn't do anything. I mean, she shouldn't want to kill him either, but she's she's a very angry, she angry woman right anger. now. Yeah. She was eventually released, and six years after her time in the psychiatric hospital, she met David Saunders. So, but wait, wait, wait. What happened to Melissa, her daughter, on the train tracks? Uh, well, she went back to mom. Are you serious? Yeah, so a few months after meeting, David moved in with her and both her daughters, who were still in her custody. And he did at this time also keep his own apartment, but this was something that caused tension and fights throughout their relationship. He has an apartment, she's not happy, because the fact that he has a life that is separate from hers, that made her extremely jealous. And... At one point, she slit the throat of his two-month-old puppy in front of him just to show him what she was capable of. Okay, you didn't give me any warning. I didn't tell Charlie to leave the room. He's going to have nightmares. I'm going to have nightmares. What? She did that to his puppy? Just as a show of power. No. No. Okay, I knew I hated her, and now, mm mm-mm. Oh, she is a monster. She's a monster. She is a true monster. Despite that happening, one year later, the two of them had a daughter. Shortly after her daughter's birth, uh, Saunders did leave her because she had tried to kill him by stabbing him in the, I believe, stomach or chest with a pair of scissors. He left after their daughter, but... Fuck, that's, I mean, obviously if someone tries to murder you, leave them. But I feel like if someone murdered your puppy in front of you, you should have left them. Then. She is so surprising to me. So she has multiple children now and still has custody of them. She has threatened both of her main partners and they've left her. Like, she is, the, the violence in this is just I I don't know how to comprehend this level of violence in Yeah. And and the thing that sucks is I know that this happens and we just mm-hmm. we know about this because of later things that she does. You know about it because the aftermath, yeah. which is fucking heartbreaking it is. because also shit like this happens every fucking day. Like this shit happens right now. I know and I I hate and that. And we're going to learn about it because the aftermath because someone was killed because 
someone was abused to the point that they finally got out, even though they've they've been injured and abused for years. Like, it's so fucked up. Uh, Well, I will say, this is an interesting case of abuse by a woman to her husband, which is something I don't think we hear a lot about. It happens, because it can happen just as much as it can with a husband to a wife, or, you know, Mm -hmm. in... Because think about it, like, there are relationships that are are all sex, male-female, male-male, female-female, like, no one is, anyone can be an abuser. Mm-hmm. We just often think of a husband abusing a wife, but Catherine Knight is an example that that is not the only circumstance. Yeah. So after Saunders left her, she met another guy named John Chillingworth, and she was in a relationship with him for about three years. Can I just make, like, one comment how Catherine Knight can get, like, boyfriend and husband after husband, yet I'm just here being, like, single AF. So, same, but also it's because we don't settle. We don't settle. We don't kill people. You know what? I'm holding out for the right one. I'm holding up for a hero to the end of the <laughs> night. But also... Just till the end of the night, though. After that, he me trash. It's fine. <laughs> but, like, literally, it's one of those things where I'm like, and he got married while in prison. And I'm like, what? Number one, who's writing letters with someone who killed, like, 70 people? Two, okay. I'm like, shit, he got married in prison. Can I just get, like, a date on a weekend? Like, <laughs> I mean, shit, I'll go to dinner on a Wednesday if that's all you have open. <laughs> <laughs> shit i will i'll grab coffee before work if you work downtown i don't really know i i would really have to want to meet someone because i like my sleep i don't get to work on time i don't think i could do coffee in the morning <laughs> fair but my issue is like carpool whatever regardless she's in a relationship with john chillingworth um and with him she had a child and it was her first son For the most part, their relationship actually was pretty much without issue, but most likely it's because basically during their entire relationship, she was having an affair with a man named John Price. Oh. And her relationship with John Price, this would be the one that finally pushed Catherine over the edge. Oh, as if she hasn't been over the edge this entire time. Oh, uh, compared to what's about to happen, nah. She is, she is frolicking. In a meadow far from the edge. A meadow of, you know, like, attempted murder, but a meadow nonetheless. It's a meadow of knives, because that's what she loves. But she knows how to run through it without getting cut. I mean, honestly, that sounds like some Harry Potter shit. It also, like, horror, magic, scary. Well, that too, but yeah. So John Price is known to just be this great guy. He's liked by everyone who knows him. And he had been married before, but his marriage had ended in 1988. And his two-year-old daughter remained with his former wife. The two older children lived with him. So, you know, when Catherine moves in, or, you know, their relationship starts being a thing, you know, she becomes part of his family. And he was well aware of her violent reputation when she moved into his house in 1995. But his kids liked her. He was making a lot of money working in the local mines. And apart from their pretty violent arguments, you know, he felt like their life was a bunch of roses. 
In 98, Knight and Price fought over his refusal to marry her. So in retaliation, she videotaped items that he'd apparently stolen from work, and she sent the tape to his boss. So although a lot of the items that she filmed were like nothing, like out of date medical kits that he'd scavenged out of the company trash, like shit like that, his boss had to fire him. Like he, he had to. And so he was fired from his job that he'd had for 17 years. Oh my god. That same day, he kicked her out of the house, and she returned to her own home, while news of what she'd done spread throughout the town. A few months later, though, Price restarted the relationship, but he refused to let her move in with him. He was like, nah, we're not going there yet. Slow and steady. Yeah, not a, don't do it in this case. I mean, true. Like, maybe, like, run quickly. Uh, yes. So, their fighting became even more frequent, and at this point, most of his friends didn't want anything to do with him when he was with her. They were like, nah, dude, like, we're, we're so, we hate her. She's awful. She's a monster. I don't want to be around her, and if you're with her, we're not going to be around. No. And I get that. So in February of 2000, a series of assaults on Price culminated with Catherine stabbing him in the chest. Oh my god. And at this point, he's fed up. He kicked her out of the house, and on February 29th, because it's a leap year, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work, and he took out a restraining order to keep her away from him and his kids. I mean, he got stabbed in the chest. I don't blame him one bit. Yeah, how she's able to, like, be walking around for him to get a restraining order, I have no fucking idea. I don't either, I don't get it. Like, she stabbed him. She stabbed him. In the chest. Yeah. No, I know. And for someone who works at a slaughterhouse, she either was only stabbing him to scare him, or, like, is not very good. Because, like, she would know where to stab him. She is... She is doing it to scare him, because she does know. Remember, she got promoted all that shit. She's good at her job. She is good at her job, and that's really terrifying that you would stab someone in the chest as a fear tactic. Yeah, well, she's a scary fucking person. She is a scary bitch. So that afternoon, after getting the restraining order, he told his co-workers that if he didn't come into work the next day, it's because she murdered him. Oh my and god, he knew. He knew, yeah, like, and his... the situation he was in. That's scary. Yeah, and he's he's not doing this. He's not like it's a joke. Like, uh huh. Well, you know, she's gonna. If I don't, I'm not here tomorrow. It's because I'm dead. Like it, he meant it. Like his coworkers pleaded with him not to go home. Like, just come home with us. Don't go home. It's not safe. You admitted it. But he said that he was scared she'd kill his kids if he didn't go home. Oh my god, that is. As his friend, could you imagine that situation where you're like, I want to just handcuff him and force him to stay, yet he's a father who's like, if I don't go home, my kids are dead. And then you're like, oh, fuck, I get it. Like, like yeah. you can't intervene in a situation like that. Yeah. And it's not even realistically one that you can say, well, I'll go with him because first then off- Then you could be dead. You- you know, you might have a family and kids and stuff to take care of. But also, what if that's what triggers her? What if him coming home with this other person is what sets her yeah. off? 
I mean, it's there's no way to win. But he went home and found that Catherine wasn't there, but she'd sent the kids away for a sleepover at a friend's house. So kids were gone and safe. And so he spent the evening with his neighbors before he came home to an empty house and went to bed at around 11 p.m. I feel like that's when you can tell things are going to happen is when you go from like, oh, talking about dates and stuff to talking about times. Uh, yeah. Later on in the night, Catherine arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping. She sat, watched some TV for a few minutes before she hopped in the shower. And then she woke Price and they had sex. And then after that, he fell asleep. Also, again, she had stabbed him the day before. And she walks in and is like, let me get that dick. And he's like, okay. Also, she watched TV and showered all while he was asleep and presumably had no idea she was there. Then goes and has sex with him and he's like, I, it'll be cool. What? I am just at this point, I am convinced that she has a magical vagina because I mean, that is the only explanation. Explanation. I The vagina is quite the, magical, but hers seems to be something it extraordinary. Is. The, the, the vagina is perfect. It's all tucked together with like hospital corners. It's nice. <laughs> Penises just like are there. They just like hang out. Around. They're they gross. Suck. They're it's... ugly. Anyone who says a penis is cute and sexy is lying. No, it looks like a sea creature attached to a person. <laughs> Oh my god, it looks like something that fell over. Vaginas are nice and inside, and it's like, it's like a, a I don't know, it's like a, like a wrapped present. And the, you know what? No, it's like, a vagina is like a wrapped present from like, a mom who does a lot of DIYs and like, loves Pinterest <laughs> and like, does that shit. And you're like, holy fuck, Catherine. And she's like, mm, yeah, you know, it's what I do. I actually wove this bow. Um, this one over here, I cross-stitched. It's whatever. And then a penis is like a present that was wrapped by um, someone who's like, oh, fuck, I have to be at work in five minutes and we're doing Secret Santa today. Shit, what do I, uh, this, throw it in the bag, some tape, let me staple it here and here. That's, yeah. that is what genitalia are. It is. Well, and the penis is like a present that you have to wrap, but you don't have a bag and tissue paper. So it's literally like whatever you have in the kitchen. Like you- you Just roll it in newspaper. You, you either have newspaper- A dick is just rolled in newspaper. <laughs> you've got newspaper, you've got an old paper bag that you can fold awkwardly to like- Because sh- obviously the gift you have is awkwardly shaped. It's not a square. Of course. It, it's like this weird, like, non-shape. Yeah. Of course. Uh-huh. So that's a penis. And you're like, you know, ignore the grocery store logo on the bag. We all see it. We all get it. It's there. We're going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Regardless, she has a magical vagina. It's the only explanation. So the next morning, Price didn't show up for work. And his co-workers knowing, he said yesterday, if he doesn't show up to work, it's because she murdered him. They're freaking the fuck out. As they so should. they. They're like, we know exactly what happened. They called the police. Police arrive at the house and find Catherine Knight unconscious after an apparent suicide attempt from overdosing on pills. And she is lying in the arms of Price's headless and mutilated body. Oh my god. 
What? Knight had stabbed him 37 times, and then meticulously removed his skin in one piece, which she then hung on a hook in the kitchen. This is something my mind cannot even really begin to put together as an actual image of... Of, like, what the actual fuck would that look like? Because it was, like, one piece, right? Right. One piece. I am still trying to get around. Like, the the human body and skin, there's so many folds. There's so many angles. Like, I I, I don't... Where's the seam? I don't understand how it's one piece. Like, literally, she took her time. Like, maybe there was one long slit, like, on his back, and then she, like, I don't know, somehow... Uh, no, this is... Like it was a fucking, like, a morph suit? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, a, know. I don't work For in a some reason, I'm imagining, like, slit down the sides, and it's just, like, connected by, like, the scalp, but it's, like, you know, down the sides, so it's, like, two halves of a, like, a paper human, but it's, you know, skin of your ex-boyfriend, or current boyfriend, I don't know what the fuck y'all are, but it, one piece, on a hook... That she installed in the kitchen. No. First off, anyone has a meat hook in their kitchen, run. Unless they are also like a shawarma cook or something, run. Yeah. If they're not making kebabs, run. Meat hook. They don't need a meat, meat hook. Meat hook is not something you have in your average kitchen. Run. No. So not only had she skinned him, but his torso, arms, and legs were laying on the floor nearby. On the stove, his head was bubbling in a stew with cabbage, potatoes, pumpkin, and zucchini. She fucking, like, made a goddamn meal with his head. Like, eyes and teeth and tongue and brain and his head. This is so disgusting because the rest of those flavors sound great if you add, like, some chicken or beef. But, like, you put a head in there and I am never gonna be able to have those flavors together. Honestly, if you are super fucked up or have a really fucked up sense of humor and made, like, a head-shaped, like, ground beef or ground pork or something, how much fun would that be for, like, a Halloween stew? <laughs> oh, God, that's... If people knew this case. They would... <laughs> it's a very specific group of friends no, no. that you invite well, over. But the thing is, you make, like, a head shaped out of meat and anyone's gonna get the joke, but people who understand the case will really get the joke and they'll just look at you and they'll be like emily that's fucked up (laughs) like we're not like we're leaving and we just need some time so again this is not where the fucked upness ends wait i'm sorry this is not where it ends no she had also set the dining room table with servings of baked potatoes veggies and gravy mixed with pieces of his butt his buttocks that She'd carved and cooked and mixed in with the gravy. And on each plate at the table, there was a a name card that bore the names of his children. She was planning, if, if the police had not gotten there, her plan was when the kids got home from sleepover, she had dinner ready and she was going to feed the children their father. That is so... But also... But also... Oh, yeah, there's a but also. She'd already made a dish for herself, and half of it was thrown out. The other half she'd already eaten. But, you know, she threw out half of it because she probably couldn't finish it. 
That's so, so she'd already had lunch. Up. Oh my god. Oh my god. I mean, we've done cannibals before. We've done Dahmer. Mm-hmm. We've done Isezagawa. This feeding it, him to his children as your plan is such I feel a like, level of fucked up. I feel like the cannibals we've covered before have been the opposite of making it personal. Like, they've made it to the point where their victim is not a person, they're like an object, or they're just food. Like, it's not... They dehumanize them. This is the complete opposite. She, like, drills in on that this is your dad. Yes. And feeds it to the children. I will say, I agree with, like, that level of, like, uh, humanizing it. But I will say... Dahmer and Dennis Nielsen, it was still very personal. That's true. That's true. But he never fed it to, like, their families. No. He never fed their... They never fed their victims to the victims' families. There is that one guy who, I don't remember his name, but he literally killed people and then, like, ground them up with his hamburger meat and served them as hamburgers in his restaurant. That's horrifying. I know. So... Also on the table, there was a photograph of Price, and it was accompanied by a handwritten note that Catherine wrote as the centerpiece. And the note read, do I also need to do the Australian accent for this Absolutely. one? Okay. Tom got you big, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You and big for Ross and little John. Now play with John's dick, John Price. I, I heard it. I, I heard the swinging a little Irish, swinging a little Scottish. We're gonna, we're gonna, I had a bottle of wine. Leave me alone. It was a really good effort, but maybe you could like Thank say you. in a non-accent what you just said. In general American. <laughs> Tell me in general American what the letter said. So it's, it's a confusing letter, but I'll explain it. Okay. Afterwards. I'm glad it's confusing because so, I was like, wait, what? So the letter itself read. Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck, who's Price's daughter, for Ross, for Little John, who is his son. Now play with Little John's dick, John Price. So basically, she's accusing him, or she's saying she did this because he raped her daughter. I'm confused by the rest. There's also a lot of spelling mistakes. Yeah. Like, she spelled raping, rapping. She spelled daughter, D-O-U-T-E-R. Because, I mean, remember, when she left school at 15, she, she could not read or write, really. Yeah. Um, so it's it's confusing. But the investigation into the notes, accusations, found them to be false. Like, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. That was not her reasoning. But medics, when they found her, because, again, she's OD'd on pills of some kind. They rushed her to the hospital, and she did wake up. She was arrested. Initially, she pleaded not guilty in murdering Price, and she expressed no remorse and said she didn't remember a single thing that surrounded this fucking bloodbath. I'm sorry. She worked at a slaughterhouse, and his skin was hung on a meat hook, and she was like, I didn't do it. 
Like, it just, it's like... Right, like, bitch, who else can do that? I mean, it's like... Like, honestly, yeah, at this point, it's a talent that you have that others don't. It, yes, and it's like, okay, maybe, like, one of your coworkers, but considering they haven't been in this situation the entire time, like, you're very much suspect number one. Her defense team claimed that she suffered from amnesia and disassociation, and state psychiatrists agreed, but... They also ruled that she was sufficiently sane to know what she was doing. So, as the court attempted to assemble a jury, she suddenly changed her plea to guilty. And on November 8th of 2001, Justice Barry O'Keefe ordered her to serve life in prison without possibility of parole. And this was the first time a woman in Australia had been sentenced to life without parole. And I very much understand why. A news story in 2017 claimed that she'd adjusted pretty well to life behind bars. Her fellow inmates reportedly turned to her to negotiate disputes, and they referred to her as the Nana. So basically, I'm mentioning now she is Red from Orange is the New Black. That's terrifying. Yeah. But regardless of how respected she is in the prison, how regardless of any of that shit, the guards keep a constant watch on her, and authorities won't give her a cellmate. And as the news service put it, she is not allowed anywhere near knives. Obviously, considering they are her first love. Yeah, her first, and it, I'm gonna go out a limb and say only. Yep. So that is the case. Of the murderer, Catherine Knight. What a monster. Okay. Um, po- post-mortem? Yeah. Yep. Well, both of the cases we brought forward, I think, are some of the most intense ones in Australian uh, recent history. Um, In Australian history, and some of the most intense ones that we've ever brought on this podcast. I mean, shit, we're at episode 70, and we're, like, still, these cases are fucking horrifying they are and i am so just scared and you know sad that we're able to bring (laughs) this level of insanity in episode 70 yeah but i will say i think that the skinning you know for me that uh definitely this the skinning and the the baby on the railroad tracks you and and while she does the acts in the city obviously yours yours was very intense both of ours were but i think the evidence that we have from yours of the intensity leans this Mm -hmm. episode more in your direction i agree i think the detail i think the details that we have from the evidence and just the fact that completely throughout mine through my research through i was telling it i was like like i literally don't understand how this can be real like this doesn't make sense how could this how could one person do all of this? Well, and Ivan Milot was picking victims at random, which is horrifying. And he was, you yeah. know, shooting people ten times in the head. Completely unreasonable. But Catherine Knight's murders were personal. And, I mean, yeah. like, the the dog. Uh, the, the uh, I... Literally, I'm going to extra double lock my doors tonight, just for Max's sake. Not for me. Like, attack me, whatever. Don't 
fucking hurt Max. He is innocent in all of this and everything in the universe. Well, and he is, obviously, of course. But what Price went through is unimaginable. And mm-hmm. Catherine Knight had so many victims. Like, you know, she she killed Price, but everyone that crossed her path was a victim. Yeah, and one thing that I didn't mention in the case that really drives home how personal it is and stuff is, you know, Price was stabbed 37 times. He woke up. Like, the the investigators, the medical investigators saw evidence that, you know, after, I assume, stab one or two, he woke up and he fought and was alive through most of the attack. I hope he wasn't alive when the skinning started. I... I I don't think so because 37 stab wounds, but if there's anyone who knows where to stab and how to stab 37 times without killing someone... It's Catherine Knight. It would be Catherine Knight. Well... Fuck. So, yes. So, Ivan Milad was a fucking monster. Catherine Knight was also a fucking monster on a different level. And, you know, thank God she wasn't a serial killer. Oh my god, I, I, honestly, how she wasn't a serial killer, I don't know, at this point. Because she, you know, stabbed multiple husbands, and they just happened to survive. Yeah. Ugh, she is literally a fucking, like, a nightmare come to life. She is a nightmare come to life. So, even though I've got more on the victim count and, like, the freaking terrors of the forest... Um, I'm gonna give this one to you as the more intense case, because fucking Catherine Knight. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, fuck Catherine Knight. Yes, fuck Catherine Knight. And with that, if you guys enjoyed this episode of super fucked up content, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It seriously really helps us. We love to hear what you like. Let us know. Just leave that five stars and we'll love you forever, even though we'll always love you forever. Our love for y'all knows no bounds. And basically, we love y'all like Catherine Knight loves her knives, but in a less creepy way. But it's just as deep. Almost as deep as the knife went. No. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> Won't go there. No, but... um. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Make sure, if you aren't now, uh, make sure you like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you can get different insights into what we're doing. Uh, Pictures of all of our bottles of wine. In case you didn't know, we post them um, every Wine Wednesday. We post uh, that week's wine. So y'all get to see what we're drinking. And also check out our website, check out our merch store. We have different sales going on quite often. So if you check out, if you hit that shop button um, at the top banner, you'll see if there's a sale going on. Absolutely take advantage of that. They're great sales. Like sometimes it's like 20% off your whole order. Be sure to check it out. But with that, again, thank you all so much. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.